You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash nextbigtrade to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash nextbigtrade and use promo code NBT20 to get 20% off our Plus membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. The American dream, which was supposed to be about giving people the opportunity to rise up the, the social status or the class status, whatever you want to call it, has now become the main channel by which wealth and equality is proliferating across the, the country. If you own a house in the right place, you just do better and better and better. And if you don't, you do worse and worse and worse. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The Next Big Trade, and thanks for joining us. Uh, This week, I'm talking to Nick Hilaris. Uh, Nick is the founder and president of Metros Capital, a company dedicated to investing in and developing transformative real estate projects. Prior to Metros, he was a co-founder and president of AH Capital, an opportunistic real estate investment company, which invested more than $150 in residential and multifamily assets. Nick writes a newsletter called Profit, um, he is active philanthropically and cares deeply about homelessness and the promise of low-cost higher education. Uh, Nick, how's it going? How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for that generous introduction and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, no, thank you for coming. Uh, so before we start talking about all the stuff we're going to talk about, I always like to ask, what is it on your mind at the moment? What's in the news that's, that's grabbing your attention? apart from your investment thesis? Sure. That's an interesting question because there's a lot going on these days. Right. Yeah. So I've been paying close attention to this war stuff. I'm a big sort of history buff and read a lot of history. So the geopolitical stuff always gets me interested. And in, in- what, what are you thinking on that? Because me too, I am like, all of my work, I have to remind myself to like look at what I'm meant to be looking at and not look at all this Ukraine war stuff instead. What exactly is grabbing your attention? Yeah, I think the risk of it is something that scares me. I have, I have young kids. You know, my two boys are six and four. Uh, you're, not, you're not a big fan of the nuclear war thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Not a big fan of this kind of aggressive behavior from a nuclear power that appears to be in a major sort of decline, secular decline. Now, let's. we should clarify, which one are you talking about there? The Russians. 
other Russians. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I spend way too much time looking at propaganda, uh, a Russian, evil Russian propaganda. Um, and they say exactly the same thing about the United States. They say exactly the same thing. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, the, the other thing, back to the Ukraine war, what's super interesting about it, again, is this, this fog of war thing. Like, the one thing that no one expected to happen, which is like, hey, the Ukrainians could, like, win this thing, looks like it's happening or could happen, which is kind of fascinating, but also, I think, kind of dangerous. It's almost like I I, I don't want the Ukrainians to lose, but if they win too, if they win too well or win too quickly, it just increases that risk for the world. And that really scares me. I definitely. Yeah. So as I said, I am like 20% made of Russian propaganda at this point uh, with 80% some sort of adipose lipid type tissues, you know? Um, And when I look at the say the stuff I'm looking at, it looks so I'd be absolutely terrified if that were true. If the Ukrainians were winning, I would be terrified because I think the Russians are all in and they will stop at nothing to make sure this is a war of an existential threat to them as far as they're concerned. As to whether they should think that way is another matter, but that does seem to be the way they're talking about it. Um, and the other side of this is what I'm reading, and it's, as I said, it's because I'm reading way too much stupid-ass propaganda that I shouldn't be reading, but uh, if I, I like to look at both sides of the argument all the time. And when I look at the other side of the argument, the Russians are arguing they're, make, they're making inroads. They're, they're, it looks to me as if they're definitely going to win this battle in the East. And the question you've got to ask yourself is what happens with the West of the country going forward? And I, I don't have a good answer to that. I really, really have no visibility on what will happen next after they take the Donbass. So scary times, right? Yeah, very scary times, yeah. So I I was looking through some of your material, and I noticed you said one thing that caught my attention. You said something you wrote. You said, I've been in business now for almost 20 years, and the whole time I've been fascinated by one question, how can I be a great investor? And, mate, I've got to tell you, I want to know the answer to that one too. I, uh, I It would really, really help if more of my trades worked and I made more money. You got any advice? Yeah. <laughs> How much time do we have? Let's give it three minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's such a fascinating topic and it, I think it's it's so it's such an interesting art, the art of investing. And it's the the reason why it's fascinating is because that it's basically impossible to answer that question with an with a clear, sort of simple, absolute answer. Because investing is about psychology. And so for me, for me to be a good investor is different than for you because we come to the art with a completely different sort of psychological makeup. So true. And so, so true. yeah. So there are some people who are, who are phenomenal at trading. They can see these and they love to find these opera, these little arbitrage opportunities and, you know, scalp trades. And there's some people who are great at, you know, riding these big waves, these bull waves. And there's some people good at picking bottoms and, some people who are good at using their creativity. So it really kind of depends what kind of person you are. And I think a lot of the, you know, to make it in this business is trying to find that match, finding a strategy that actually matches with your psychological makeup and then experimenting with it. You know, you're always going to be learning. You'll never have the answer. But if you can, you can play within the bounds that make sense for you, you can do well. 
Yeah, I th- I think that's absolutely right. Once you know yourself, like you've got a much better better chance of finding an investment strategy that will work for you. Don't try and trade like somebody else if if that isn't what's going to work of your psychology. Yep, it just doesn't work. So we should transit onto the investment thesis here because uh, I know that Frank, who produces this podcast, is heavily invested in this question. And I think Frank's not not alone. A lot of people are invested in this question. Can you talk to us about your investment thesis? What's the next big trade? Sure. I find myself unexpectedly bullish on the U.S. housing market. And, and I say unexpectedly because, look, mortgage rates just like ripped higher by a significant percentage, you know, went from the high twos to call it the mid fives today. House prices just appreciated 20 to 40 percent, depending on what city or jurisdiction you're looking at. And the market looks like it's crashing. So you, you add those three things up and look at housing. And the, your first reaction isn't, wow, I'm excited about U.S. housing. But yet, as I, you know, that I, this is my day job is to be involved in, in the housing market. So I have you know, a lot of data, personal data. But as I looked at the bigger data, I, I kind of got convinced that this is actually a really interesting time to be bullish about U.S. housing. And there's, there's a few reasons for it. I think, you know, starting with the demand side, I think something really fascinating happened with COVID in the, in the nature of demand for housing, which it kind of woke up. So there was this period after the crash where housing demand in the U.S. was was there, but it wasn't like it was in the early 2000s, you know, in the years leading up to the crash. It was kind of kind of slower than that and different. And there was all these stories about how, you know, the millennial generation in particular was they had a different view, a different dream. They, they liked choice. You know, they liked the ability to you know, move at the drop of a hat experiences they were big into experiences and and they were big into the sharing economy and co-living and all this stuff right like this is pure fantasy this this is just a function of like a hangover a psychological hangover that that was caused by the the crash you know the this generation suffered through or saw their parents in many cases suffer through pretty stressful times when when the housing market did actually crash and house prices declined significantly in a, in a short period of time. But something changed and that we started noticing it in our business at Metro's Capital, like right in the very beginning of COVID, people started to think about housing differently and they, their risk appetites for housing changed in, in, a, in my view, in a fundamental way. And so where they were, where, people, where households were content to kind of wait until they had the perfect financial picture to buy a house, now they're stretching and willing to take risk and willing to do things like, you know, we saw this a lot, like ask their parents for money, ask their friends for loans. So the psychology went from, you know, maybe just patience to impatience. And I think that that change is here to stay. COVID scared all of us. It scared the whole country and housing became really, really important. And people are not going to compromise anymore on housing. That's kind of thesis number one. Number two, there's, there's this demographic argument, which again, demographics is difficult to uh, hang your hat on because it's, it's, it's for all of its data is in my view is kind of an inexact science, but there is this big millennial generation and they're coming of age in the sense of reaching points in their career where they're making more money and more importantly, having children. And so 
there is sort of this demographic uh, tailwind to housing, which I think is here to stay for the, the next five to 10 years. And then you couple that with a really crazy supply picture. And it, it's crazy uh, for a number of reasons. One is the housing crash absolutely ruined American housing production. Now, American housing pr- production was never great, but it got absolutely destroyed and it never really recovered. So if you kind of look at a chart of housing starts, like we're barely getting back to where we were for in the pre-crash era. And meanwhile, the political environment locally has gotten really, really bad for housing production. And so there's this structural headwind, a massive structural headwind to the actual production of new supply, which is creating this crazy storm where you have you know changing demand, which is real. And then you've got this supply, which is kind of stuck. It doesn't look like it's changing anytime soon. Uh, and so I think there's this long-term recipe where there's going to be a lot more demand than there is supply, which is supportive of higher prices. So that's the, that's the high level of the thesis. So a couple of things come to mind, although I recognize the picture you paint is one that I can, I, I can easily kind of recognize part of the story of. Because, uh, you know, everybody involved in markets is looking at housing in 2008, because 2008 was the nexus of the crisis. And in fact, if you had any sense, you were probably looking at it in 2006. I remember going in to see uh, Ben Bernanke uh, in, I think, yeah, it would have been late 2006, maybe early 2007. Uh, back then, you could go in and chat to Fed officials uh, if you were an investor. Um, if you groveled enough, and I'm good at groveling, you can tell, right? So I went in to see him, and I asked him what his view on his views were, of housing were, and he said to me, "No, I don't think there's a bubble." And I, I got to tell you, my mouth dropped. Even in the meeting, I couldn't quite hide my surprise at that position, and. Uh, I, you know, I still remember it very clearly that, that that completely, you know, the Fed did not see that housing bubble coming. And I, and God knows how, because like it was pretty obvious to anybody who was paying attention, including people like Josh Rosner and stuff like that, who I used to work with. So anyhow, so that's one thing. The first part of your thesis is to me the most interesting question. Why did people's attitudes to real estate change around COVID? Why, why would people reach then when they wouldn't reach before? Yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer because the decision or the change is being made at the level of the psychology of the individual households. But from what I can infer from the activity that we've seen selling houses at Metro's Capital and just observing market dynamics across the country, I suspect that it's it's a function of the need for the feeling of safety. So COVID kind of woke people up to what kind of neighborhood they were living in, and they thought they thought differently about it in many cases. And so you've seen this great migratory reshuffling. People started moving all over the place uh, right in right in the early part of the pandemic in in the summer of 2020. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I can see how 
watching unprecedented events unfold in front of you might have made you wonder whether you were going to be locked into Brooklyn or Manhattan or downtown Chicago. All of a sudden, you you realize that you had a problem. Uh, we used to live on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, and we moved out here to Andover uh, 2017. And my wife still says, what if we hadn't done it? What if we were still in a two-bedroom apartment with three kids on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with no access to the parks? Because the parks were shut down. For... So I can see how a lot of people would have gotten a, a real stick somewhere the sun don't shine uh, to get to get that life plan sorted out. Yeah, I, I get it. And I think people did. I think people did get stuck and it really like shocked them. So having that, that sort of cramped environment, like my friend in Shanghai who's 62 days in his two-bedroom apartment, like he's, ha- he's in the middle of, of that situation right now and then when you when you move or you, you see your friends move and they start talking about these sort of more spacious suburban opportunities that are often significantly cheaper than the upper west side you start to have like a almost like a self-referential moment like hamlet where you're like oh wait a minute i was in this game that maybe i shouldn't have been in that game i got the whole time i could have been over here you know experiencing life in a completely different way and I, I think that happened to a lot of people. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's it's thousands and thousands of people had that kind of thought and they started moving around. So it was about security. It was about lifestyle. And then it was also about, I think there was, this one's harder to prove, but I, I think it's true. I think there's a sense in which non-homeowners in particular. So if you're an urban renter in March of 2020, but you're making good money, but maybe you just don't have enough money to buy a million dollar house or millions of dollars houses in New York or LA. There was a sense at the beginning of COVID where you you started to feel like left out because you didn't own a house, didn't have the benefit of owning a house. And people are starting to see, you know, I, I think in the, in the 2020s, people are starting to see like America's divided on, on a very clear line of demarcation. Like if you own a house, you're somewhat protected from inflation in a different way than if you're not. Yeah, you've locked your rent at some, you're renting your uh, piece of real estate to yourself. And that means if the rent were to go up, you could just pay, you know, you you pay yourself more rent. You're, You're hedging out that exposure. That's right. Yeah. And if you look at this chart, like I saw some chart floating around Twitter the other day, basically looking at the rise in household net worth attributed to home home equity essentially from 20 i think it was from 2019 to 2022 it's it's massive i forget the number but it makes the point it's like if you owned a house going into covid covid was a gift because you, your net worth your balance sheet just looks 40 percent better than it did before sure. and that's the way in which there's this ironic thing happening in in our lifetime where the american dream which was supposed to be about giving people the opportunity to rise up the the social status or the class status, whatever you want to call it, has now become the main channel by which wealth inequality is proliferating across the the country. If you own a house in the right place, you just do better and better and better. And if you don't, you do worse and worse and worse. And I think, uh, you know, for many reasons, housing is becoming this meta issue of the American democracy. You know, it's not just an American problem, but 
it's it is an American problem because we're we're so focused psychologically on housing. It's definitely not just an American problem. You you know, obviously I'm from the UK originally. Uh, I'm, I'm British in most respects, really. Um, and I can assure you, I is familiar with London real estate prices going ever higher and wondering why the hell I didn't buy a bigger house back in 1992 or whenever. Um, the, the, the differences in these. Now, the question is why that happened. And then the next question is whether it will continue. And I think you're, if I've understood your basic investment hypothesis, it's go buy a house. But I'd like to know why you think that trade is going to continue to work. Because I could give you good, strong counter arguments about why it's over. Yeah, and just to be clear, like I think there are some macro scenarios where this trade doesn't work that well. My base case forecast right now is that the world evolves to a place where there is a recession and the recession that happens globally reduces the pressure that's causing the the headline inflation numbers to look the way they look and the central banks around the world are able to essentially kind of thread the needle so that that's my base case macro view because there's other views where like if the central banks can't thread the needle and, and they actually have to keep raising rates, then all bets are off. I think that's a very dangerous environment for all assets, including American houses. But I, I kind of don't think that's going to happen. I'm a little more optimistic. I basically think they're they're going to get lucky. They're going to induce this little recession. And China is basically inducing its own recession right now. You know, I think it's going to be a massive GDP surprise from China, maybe not so much of a surprise. And that maybe that's on purpose. And that drives the inflation out. And the central banks can raise a few times and then declare victory because the headline numbers look better and get back to a more accommodative stance. And so if that happens, then you know th- that's sort of the backdrop that has to happen for my thesis to really make a lot of sense. If you get a massive um, deflation caused by the stock market going down 90% or something, or China you know crashing or losing their currency, that, that's a different environment. You know, the language you're using, is, it's, it's really interesting. So first of all, if you're right, and we the scenario you paint where they thread the needle is the same scenario we've had every time we've had uh, some kind of uptick in inflation, you, growth slows down, uh, the Fed gets to say, whoops, too much, cuts rates, and we can all go back to buying expensive houses because uh, interest rates keep falling. And in, in, in both nominal and real terms, right? Uh, and the, what bothered me about the way you express that is I'm not 100% sure that you want to get some guy who's a little bit older than me threading a needle, right? If you've ever seen, I know what I'm like when I'm threading a needle now, is as a metaphor, it's, it doesn't suggest confidence for me. Like a picture of Jay Powell wiggling with a needle and a piece of thread trying to get the needle. No, these guys are not to be trusted to thread any needles at this point in, in this, in any economic, you know, with economic trends and cycles. So I'm a little nervous that in fact, this isn't like the old days. Um, and in fact, Greenspan's put is deep out of the money on the S&P, like below 3,000, because that next inflation print could easily be 9%, not 85 uh, I've seen where diesel's going. Uh, everything you consume 
less so on the West Coast, mind, but <laughs> a lot of stuff in the centre of the country is is basically, uh, you know, got a big diesel component to it because it gets delivered, right? Um, there's no obvious reason with with what happened in Shanghai and what happened, what is happening in hydrocarbons and refined product that inflation comes down soon. So this could get uglier before it gets better. And that makes me a little nervous. But uh, so that's that's a monetary policy backdrop. But I mean, from when you were discussing the the kind of broad bones of the trade, sounded to me as if you thought there was a big supply constraint, that we're just not going to get a supply response. And there's just an underlying shortage of housing in the US. Yeah, for sure. So your your point's a great point, and it's something that investors need to, to be wary of because there are outlier what I what I'm calling outlier macroeconomic environments that would make doing anything, you know, very risky. So like there's the hyperinflation scenario and there's a deflationary bust. And we're in we live in a world where either one of those is possible. You know, so like I, I listened to your discussion with Rosenberg the other day, like, yeah, that's possible. That's possible to get disinflation or maybe even deflation, given where we are. Sure. We could also get hyperinflation, you know, to your point about some of the things we're seeing in commodities. And so, you know, put those to the side for a second and think, okay, maybe maybe the, we're not going to have a disaster. We'll have something in between one of those two disasters. Sure. What's interesting about the housing market is that it really is structurally undersupplied. I mean, it's it's really it's a mess in this country to, to get anything built. And it, it's been getting increasingly harder for years. And now we have this sort of new dyna, dynamism in the market where people are moving around. So I'll, I'll give you a sense of, of, of this by giving an example. So I, I was looking for the, the latest piece I wrote for profit about the housing market. I was looking at some of these sort of hotter markets that have done well during COVID. And I looked at Denver. So the, the data on Denver is fascinating. Oh, from 2019 to 2022, 100,000 people, households moved to, uh, I think it's people actually, sorry. 100,000 people moved to the Denver area. And in that time period, they sold like 14,000 new homes. So just looking at that differential, right? If you were to say like, if every one of those 100,000 families bought a new house or ha- had to buy a new house, like they're just woefully undersupplied. It's like 5X, 7X, something like that. Now, it's not the case because there's existing home sellers and there's renters. But the point is, is that when you get population moving around to, to these jurisdictions, it exacerbates the supply problem because these, these states and cities, they can't, they can't handle population. So if you look, look at these numbers anywhere, you look at these cities in Florida that have been booming, or you look at Nashville, it's, just, it's the same thing. They're basically 5X to 10X undersupplied in terms of new, new housing. And I have this thesis that the whole country is going to look like California very quickly. And what I mean by that is if you look at California history, there was periods of time you know, before the war, but mostly after the war where millions of people moved here and the state, no matter how business friendly they could try to be, could never build millions of units. So they were undersupplied for decades 
and you walked into the 2000 era where you know California, many of the most expensive cities on, on in the country are in California. And I have this feeling that if the migratory reshuffling that we're seeing as a result of COVID continues, every other city that's popular is going to look exactly like that. They're going to get this massive influx of people. House prices are going to be out of reach and they're never going to recover because the local political environment is so anti-housing and the, and the political uh, debate has evolved on this line of housing where you have the, the people who are NIMBYs and then you have everybody else. But the NIMBYs have all the money and they have all the influence over the city councils and local jurisdictions who make zoning decisions. So we're in this kind of crazy world. So I'm a NIMBY. I, I definitely do not want but someone building some house which damages my asset value. Um, and I definitely wouldn't want a transfer of real estate value from me to a real estate developer nearby. Now, because I'm not particularly well connected locally, um, and I really ought to try harder, right? But if you've got a personality like mine, it's difficult to make friends. Um, so I really ought to try harder locally and get on committees and become, you know, integrate myself into the community more. Um, the community, of course, has its own views on that. But uh, uh, it's always going to be the case. NIMBYism is not new. Nobody wants a transfer of real estate value from them to someone who's a developer or whatever. So you, that's always going to be the case. And it's it's a consistent phenomenon all over the place, um, in other countries, everywhere you look. Um, where NIMBYism doesn't happen, it's because you have some other body that's in control that can impose costs on the buyers of real estate, you know, and, and just cram it down saying you, you know what you're, you're you're building on the upper west side we're going to put a building right in front of your hudson river view and block it off and that will be transferred across and we that's why you have air rights and situations like that in cities like new york so nimbyism is, is, is an underlying problem that won't go away there is another problem here though isn't it these people are coming we i know uh, my wife who's from the massachusetts area has family and friends who have moved to denver denver is a happening town there are a lot of jobs and wage rates are high that makes real estate prices high it's easy to move to get to get a job in denver it's hard to get a place and the real estate guys are the guys who are intermediating that that economic rent, if you will. Um, if you wanted to move to Cleveland, no problem. We've got all the real estate in the world for you there. And Denver's just one example, right? The Boise, Idaho. Why the hell is Boise, Idaho so hot? Austin, Texas, um, the three cities area in uh, the Carolinas, Nashville, you mentioned. San Antonio's pretty hot too. Um, if you follow Rick Palacios, you can see what's going on in these, these localities. These are growing areas. I suspect Boise's hot precisely because there's a whole bunch of old farts like me who bought in California, squeezed that market by not allowing any development. And now they figure they'd like to cash out, sell their $2 million home, buy a $750,000 home in Boise, ski a little bit while they still can, and use the rest of the money to, to live on. So I think there's a flow, that this flow continues for a while, and these places can keep getting more and more hot, more and more expensive. And I don't think there's any good solution for Frank, who is listening in on this, um, and trying to figure out whether he'll ever be able to buy a home in the D.C. area. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. Like I know several people, uh, some of my original investors in, in my first real estate venture, who literally fit that demographic. 
They sold their millions of dollar houses in California, moved to Nevada. Uh, they didn't move to Boise, but they it's, moved to it's Nevada. It's a dry heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lower, lower taxes and whatnot. The the other thing too that I I've, I should have mentioned earlier, I think this remote work thing is also part of the demand story. So remote work and the extent to which remote work remains a phenomenon or continues to maybe even grow as a phenomenon in this country is is also another factor that is driving sort of this migratory reshuffling. And there, there's a paper that somebody referenced just the other day on. Uh, on Twitter that the National Bureau of Economic Research put out. And essentially the authors of this paper were attempting to isolate the price, the extent to which the price increase we've seen in this country is related to remote work. So they were trying to like cancel out migration, the the stuff that I was just quoting in Denver. And their estimate is that 50% of the price move is attributed to demand changes resulting from remote work. So essentially it's like people moving within cities just to the suburban part of it because they can have a better lifestyle um, rather than moving, you know, from California to Boise, for example. So it's, that's an interesting point. And I do think there's something to it, to that part of the demand and remote work is probably here to stay. And, and that will, that will continue to put pressure on these local jurisdictions. These, the Nashvilles of the world and the San Antonio's, the Boise, if, if I'm concerned about one one kind of market, it's the kind of market like Boise, where it doesn't really have the strong uh, job growth or, or right. dynamism right. That, that you could find. Like Nashville is a fun city. Atlanta is a fun city. These places, they were growing no matter what. You know, Boise is a, may be fun, but it's not fun like like Nashville or Atlanta. Uh, so th- those are probably the most at-risk cities in the in the country. Yeah, you know, to my mind, you you compare two different markets, and we should distinguish between them. Um, so Atlanta uh, is a really strong real estate market, and it's one you know I do a little investing in real estate. I probably shouldn't because I maybe who knows if I'm any good at it. But um, what I can say about Atlanta is the rents are so much lower than anything in the Northeast. And that makes me relatively bullish Atlanta, right? It's got a, a decent housing stock. It's got low rents. That means that for people like Frank, they're paying away less of their income to their landlord or their bank when they buy real estate. Remote working out of Atlanta, that makes a lot of sense because you're paying a quarter the rent you'd pay in New York City. And But no, it doesn't make sense to remote work from the Bay Area to a job in New York. No, it's an interesting uh, point. And it's one of the par- the parts of this story that doesn't actually make a lot of sense, right? So like, I'll give, I'll give you an example, a couple examples. So Los Angeles County lost something like 160,000 people hmm. in, in the last year or something like when, that. When did that last happen? Did, does, Los, does Los Angeles County lose people generally? No. I mean, that's like the cumulative total for the previous decade. Wow. Yeah. Like, it, it's a big change. But what's wild about it, and it, it speaks to this sort of problem in the market, not only this for sale market, but also the rental market, the rental market's on fire. It's up 20, 30% from the pre-COVID numbers. And the for sale market's you know, as good as any market in the country in terms of price appreciation. And you, you lost population. 
And so it's, it, it speaks again to this structural issue. You know, there, there was something, New York City is a, a fascinating example. There was, there was a report that Bloomberg put out earlier this week, I think, where essentially they were like bashing Airbnb because there's, there's more Airbnb listings than there are actual apartments available for rent. That's what this story <laughs> was about. So it was like 13,000 Airbnb listings and 7,500 apartments available. And of course, Airbnb came out and said, well, that's not fair. But the point, the point is, is like, there's no supply in New York. New York occupancy percentage is like 99.5%, yeah. something crazy. Yeah. And so rents are actually going up. And it wasn't that long ago when you know, prominent people were saying the cities are dead. New York's never coming back. Well, rents are higher than ever. And on a, even if you look at the cities, like the big cities, what's fascinating about the, the sort of post-COVID era is that their rental inflation trajectory is at a higher sort of angle, a steeper path than the pre-COVID. So whatever's going on uh, is bullish for rents as well. Atlanta's, Atlanta's interesting because Atlanta's one of these, I have a ton of experience in Atlanta. We, we own a bunch there and have bought a ton over the last decade and have seen rents go from, you know, our first deals rents were like 600 and now they're, now they're like 1600. What happens to change this? What's going to change? So part of the reason why I'm bullish on, on the housing market is I, I don't think it's really going to change. I think essentially we have this perfect storm brewing in, in this country where the demand is going to be there for, for housing and there's just not going to be enough supply. And I feel like that is here to stay. And it, as long as we don't get one of these outlier macro situations, the U.S. housing market is going to do fine. There's going to probably be a period this summer, for example, where the statistics don't look as good as they have. You know, the, mm -hmm. the acceleration of house prices is going to come down. Volume is going to come down. But that's a function of just the general uncertainty that's caused by you know, what's happening in markets you know, across the, the world, really. And then I think um, we get back we get back to an environment where housing does does well, you know, at least in terms of its value, its value, its price. So I kind of share your broad prognosis, but I can imagine how bad things happen. Um, and, you know, let me give you the California example. You talked about uh, you know, L.A. County's population uh, dropping by, was it 100K? Over 160, 160K. Yeah. Um, well, quite often these kind of statistics, they're autocorrelated. They're, there's a persistence in that number, because if there's a net migration out, then the people it reflects demographic trends. People, a demographic bulge hits a certain age and starts to adjust its choices. It would not shock me if you get a demographic flow out of places like California, for places that Californian retirees like to move to, like Arizona, like Nevada, like Boise, um, and. It would also wouldn't shock me if that resulted in budget problems for California, which exacerbated the flow, and also job problems for California, which exacerbated. Like, you, know, you, you build up New York City is a great example. You build up uh, costs based around a certain population. A small drop in population makes those costs untenable, and before you know it, property taxes have to rise to to uh, to a point which drives people out and you get into a vicious circle so it would not shock me if we got to a demographic point where high rent states 
uh, started to experience population declines relative to low rent states as young people move out and start up a new life in Georgia or Carolina or wherever the rents are lower and they pay less of it to landlords. Um, and that might be bad for real estate prices in the areas which are experiencing the population declines, just at the, at the same time as the areas which are experienced population increases have really strong real estate markets. Yeah, I think you're right that it's a, that's a risk for the big cities. But I remain pretty bullish even on the on the big cities, at least in a certain type of, of uh, real estate, like the sort of higher end. So imagine like kids, kids coming out of school that get good jobs, like the apartments that they live in. I think those are going to continue to do well, because if you rewind the clock a little bit and look at like the, the time period from 2000 to March of 2020, what was happening in the big cities was that. They, they didn't have great overall net inflows in terms of migration, so domestic migration. So California was, was basically on a downtrend before COVID in terms of if you just looked at like ins and outs of, of Americans. But what was driving increases in population in the, in the urban centers was that there was a health, a very healthy amount of uh, foreign immigration. So the statistics were positive. So the population was positive. And, and that dynamic, you know, from the little research I've done on it, like that was pr- true of a lot of big cities around the world, not just American big cities. Mm-hmm. Any, any jurisdiction that was like remotely open to immigration, Canada is a good example of this. Like the cities that were open to immigration, they saw like great population growth, despite the fact that many of their, their citizens were, were choosing, especially when they reached the age where they started having children. We're choosing to relocate because of all the reasons that we've discussed in this conversation. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So how are younger people going to live something akin to their parents' American dream? How is that going to happen? It's something I've been thinking about a lot. Actually, when I first started my newsletter, it was about two years ago. And the, one of the first articles I wrote was actually about the American dream. I, I went back in, in time and um, looked at the original articulation of the American dream, the idea, American dream, it came from this historian who wrote a book in like the 1920s. And he was basically looking back over American history up until that point. And the takeaway from that book is that the American dream is never static. It changed over time and it's still changing. But what it was, was it really was more of an idea about mobility and less about real estate, even though America really is in many sense, like a giant real estate story. Psychologically, the American dream was essentially this idea that there is a frontier of opportunity. And when the American dream feels good is when that frontier of opportunity feels viable. So it was always basically a lie. The American dream was always a lie. But as long as it was something that some people, enough people believed in, America could progress forward and, and you know, 
try to manifest this dream. A politically and economically convenient lie. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's happened in, in our lifetimes is that because of the, the financial instability, starting with the tech crash and followed with the big banks almost, you know, taking the whole banking system down. And, and now here we are with COVID and whatever's happening today is that the believability of that frontier is like really being questioned. And housing is an area in which that sort of debate or that discussion is happening because the, the dynamics of all the, the policy decisions that we've made in response to the financial instability have been very supportive of asset prices. And so house prices have gone crazy, right? And multifamily rents have gone crazy. And so it, it's, it's a consequence. It's a generational consequence of the policy choices that we've made. And I think that unfortunately, it's probably not going to change. Like unless we get one of those outlier macro situations, I think we end up pursuing the similar kind of policies that are pro, very pro-inflationary for real estate pricing in both in terms of housing and in terms of rents, because that's the easy thing to do. So I'm with you 100% on this. Uh, As a general rule, I want to position myself so that the politics of a given situation, I get to hide behind the marginal voter um, because I am not a simpatico figure. Um, the government doesn't care whether I do well, but the average American voter, it cares whether they do okay. So I definitely want to hide behind those guys <laughs> because if you put more than 5% of the American population out of their house, there is no way you're getting reelected. Right, there is absolutely no way they're going to remember. You'd be lucky to be able to eat out in public, um, without getting something bad happening to you. So I find it hard to believe that the U.S. politicians are going to allow a bigger than say twenty percent decline in real estate to take place, uh, regardless of what our central bankers are saying about credibility. The only thing that bothers me is I'm not sure they have control over something which looks to me like cost-push inflation. I don't think they have any control over this for the next couple of years. So it wouldn't be so difficult to get a situation where uh, everything's fine, we're even rallying on bonds, rates are coming back down, it all looks fine, and then we print 9 10% on CPI. And everyone suddenly realized that Jay Powell is in trouble and is meant to hike again if he's if he, if we're meant to believe anything he ever says. Yeah, I think that's one of one of the possibilities, and it's that kind of environment. You got to think if if we if the world evolves in that direction, there's no place to hide. Right, asset prices are in trouble. Everything's going down, guys. Everything's it's all going, going down. down. Yeah, and and, and that will create the conditions for a deflationary bust. And the, and then who knows how we reset from there. It's that, that would, I'm not sure how to game theory that out. I, I will bet you that unless, if the thing isn't caused by a political crisis, but if we don't have a political crisis prompting it, we'll reset in exactly the same way we've had the, played the game for the last 40 years. So if, you're, if you've got cash, then that's a good time to buy. Um, other, if, I'm more interested about whether or not American younger people are going to rebel because this is a transition, right? There's a whole bunch of people who did have real estate and did have stocks and did have Google. Um, 
and they're getting on a bit now. They they spend their times in their summer homes, uh, and, and they they have nice two vacations a year. They're going to be leaving their money to their two point four kids or their point six of a dog or whatever, or cats in many cases. And those guys will be fine. They will inherit two and a half houses or whatever. Uh, they will have been to high school with other kids who will not, who you know, inherit anything. They will not be fine. Um, and the question is, how will that destabilize politics? Will that make the political situ- situation troubling in the next five years? And I, I think it should, but I th- I've assumed it should for 20 years and nothing ever happened. Right. It's never been like that. You know, no real significant revolt. Closest thing to it was January 6th. Right. So I don't know. The US usually is a pretty stable place politically, uh, probably pretty stable going forward. What do you recommend people do with regard to a trade? Should they be, I mean, did you look at the house builders? Should they be buying house building stocks? What's, what's the trade here? Yeah. I've got three or four ideas about this. I think idea number one is that if you have the the stomach for it and the expertise, I, I believe that buying just buying houses, well well located houses in hot places that are having you know robust population growth like in Atlanta or Nashville or whatever, that's a good good trade. It's basically the southeast of the U.S. You like the low rent southeast? Is that the idea? No, I like I like L.A. There's a you lot like of places LA. where this okay. works. No, yeah, basically anywhere where they there's like a great long term dynamic economic story. So I would steer clear of these outlier markets like Boise, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So trade trade idea number one is buy buy houses and buy them with fixed price debt. It's a great trade. It's the classic real estate trade. You buy an appreciating asset. You borrow. You can still borrow, believe it or not. You can still borrow at less than CPI. So even though mortgage rates have blown out to 5.5, CPI is coming in at what, 8 eight or 9? 30-year fix is 5.5. A while ago, someone told me you could get 10-year ten year one arm at 2.5. Um, that struck me as a better deal. I don't know where I'm going to be in 30 years, probably under the ground. Yeah, a ten, I mean, look, ten-year fixed. I'd be comfortable with that too. But th- this is how real estate people make money. It's it's like this secret. It's not so. It's not so secret. But it's a very straightforward game. You borrow money at fixed price, and you have an asset that's either going up or the rent structure is going up, and you get this free money essentially. And now it's even doubly free because CPI is running at higher than your borrowing. Yeah, cost. that's what I tell everybody. That ultimately, the big secret is that infl- money goes down in value. Yeah. That's the main thing you've got to know. Money goes down in value over time. So that's that's trade number one. And then I think there are two or three other trades that you could start to put on now even. But I would be cautious because we're, we're living in this crazy volatile time. So th- this isn't like back up the truck and buy as much as possible. But the, the other ideas I have are, I think the home builders themselves are probably a decent bet to start accumulating. So like something really basic, like just buy the ETF that cl- that has a basket. I haven't really done the, the work to say like whether Lennar is better than Pulte or, or DH, but buy the XHB or slowly accumulate the XHB. I think that's a decent trade. Now, I, 
I, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to quibble with you on this. So I looked at this a couple of times because the company I work for, is, you know, is putting out recommendations on this question because we have, you know, ferociously bearish price movements, not the underlying market, which is like super tight, but this, you know, if asset markets go down, the price appreciation will disappear for a little bit. And I, I don't think you're arguing against that. I think, you know, I think you want to buy the dip, not, not, not pay top dollar right here right now um but when we looked at these uh, etfs damn things are stuff full of home depot and um uh the other diy shops right so and, and it's a huge component of the return so if you look at pulte or um lenar or dr horton um these things are on really low pe so the prospective PEs are like three and a half four and a half in that range um effectively this thing looks like they've anticipated some kind of real estate apocalypse in in those in the home builders um the problem with the etf is that you don't have home builders on, on their own you have a whole bunch of stuff so okay that that's interesting i hadn't i hadn't really dug into that but that that is i'm, I'm definitely not advocating to buy a bunch of like consumer you're, you're not a not a ho- like, you're not home you're not bullish home depot yeah okay. yeah so so maybe maybe then we'll, why don't we with the, with the benefit of your uh intel why don't we just adjust this recommendation to pick a basket of these home builders and, and buy them directly sure. or start to buy them that would be that would be the trade recommendation because this is uh th- these companies have learned from the crash like how not to behave in the market so that they really got beat up in the crash they are s- s- remarkably averse to taking risk. They just don't take any risk as far as I can see. They don't. And, and another dynamic, which a lot of people who are not in the industry don't understand, is that the crash, not only did it sort of like crush the risk appetite for the publicly traded home builders, it destroyed some, one of the main sort of entrepreneurial vehicles that was was good for the housing market in the pre-crash days in the sense that there was all of these private home building companies and private land developers that would take the risk. And so the the essential function that these companies played was they buy land, in many cases, raw land, they put it together, they get it past these pesky local city councils, they get the zoning that they need to do the housing, they package it all up, and then they sell it to Lennar and Pulte and make a huge profit. Well, a bunch of those companies got destroyed, like bankruptcy, because land went down in some cases, like out here where I live in the Inland Empire, land went down 90% during the crash. 90% strikes me there was a bit of speck in that price, a bit of froth in that price to start with, right? Totally. It, they were way out over their skis, but a 90% drawdown will take a private company to bankruptcy, and it, and it crushed a lot of people. And the market has been recovering but it never really developed that dy- dynamic force like it had in the pre-crash days. So th- that's one of the reasons why the, the market is still structurally un- undersupplied is because th- that group of people doesn't exist like it used to. So home builders, they learned, they don't take that m- much risk. And, uh, you know, they, they've been, their balance sheets are pretty good. Like you said, they're, they're in decent yeah. shape. I th- yeah. The way I see it, the, there's this increasing difference between the spec home build, the, sorry, I shouldn't say spec home, because they're not even spec building. These guys are generally building to order pretty close to. Anyway, they, 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 they option land. They don't buy the land. They option it these days and then they build to order. Um, but, uh, the, 
the thing that strikes me as as disconcerting is there the land there's no land for sale in any of the big development areas if you you want to buy large blocks of land you ain't doing it in the northeast and you're not doing it in the LA county area you're doing it outside in marginal areas and you're going to be doing it where people are going to have very long commutes or you've moved to Florida you've moved to uh, the Carolinas and places like that where you can still build big tract houses um, and with good margins. And even then, those don't work as well because of supply chain issues because uh, you can't get the the pipe off the boat in time to, to me. So it's tricky, but I will I agree with you that for these home builders, uh, there's not there's a lot of bad news is in the price of those stocks. Yep. Uh, a lot. Um, not that we recommend individual trades to retail investors, because that would get me in prison, I think, if I, I do that. And I, I'm too good looking for prison, I think. Yeah, um, <laughs> for sure. You, you don't want to end up in there. No. Um, but th- so the, the, the home builder's interesting. The other thing that I'm interested in, and I, I think it's another way to express the same kind of bullish if you're if you're bullish structurally on on u.s housing an interesting avenue would be the um buy for rent platforms or the build to rent platforms like invitation homes or american homes for rent or tricon residential companies like that have an interesting business model that i think continues to work i you know i've got to tell you i don't know much about it what's so interesting about the business model so essentially what they're, they've been doing, they started doing this in, in, I think, right around like 2012 is when this business really took off. Basically just building massive portfolios of single-family rentals. So houses that are American houses that are rented instead of bought to sell. And they've developed uh, very large portfolios, you know, in some cases hundreds of thousands of units, and developed the management capabilities over the last decade that you need to like profitably deal with that much real estate dispersed all over the place. And uh, they, they, they've been doing really well. I mean, up until the, the recent market correction that we're going through, like they, they're one of the best performing real estate stocks uh, has been these kind of rental, single family rental companies. And I, I think they continue to do well where where do they where do they operate? What, what, what geographic locations are they dominant in? So they're dominant primarily in places where there's large like suburban stock. So many of the jurisdictions that you just kind of riddled off, like Texas and the American Southeast and Florida, but they're also you know portfolios the Carolinas, but they're also portfolios that they have in in like suburban Los Angeles, for example. That's a strategy that works as well. I, I'm going to step stay away from that one for the time being. I should remind myself to look at it be, just in case the thing gets softer, um, because this one hasn't. It's if it's 2012, we haven't really tested the business model all the way through the cycle. Um, me personally, like I'd I'd love my my sense of irony, and I you know it would be triggered if they run into local government issues because i can see how i mean there you get this interesting lobbying question local government might hate your guts because you know you may you maybe you maintain them to a certain standard maybe you go down in standard because of financial pressures at which point 
towns may well have an issue with how you're running your business. So I, I can see how this could, you know, go wrong or go right. Depend. And then, of course, there's this question about solvency of municipalities. Like property taxes is an internal cost of all these businesses. Um, so what's to stop a town saying, hey, guess what? We've decided to push our pension uh, pensions up and uh, you're going to get a bill for this much. You're 15% of our housing stock. Thank you. We the, we the citizens thank you so greatly for your kind contribution to our pensions. So Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I there there's already wins, you know, political wins that suggest that local jurisdictions and maybe even states might try to regulate against institutional ownership of single family houses. So there's been talk about everything from sort of making it difficult for LLCs and corporations to own single family houses to just banning it, trying to ban it outright. And, and it's unclear whether you could constitutionally do that. And um, there's just garden variety, like political backlash. Like th- there's been some high profile trades in that industry where one of these buy for rent or build to rent platforms has come in and bought like an entire subdivision from, from one of the home builders that we discussed earlier. And that really has negative press because it's like, it's good for, it's good for the home builder. Cause it's like, okay, here, take my 400 homes, but it's not good for the story of the neighborhood. Like this is supposed to be for first time home buyers or, or whatever the story was. Yeah. And now you're, you're, you're first time home renter for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I got, I got bad news, Frank. Yeah. But you know, the, the reason I'm, I'm bullish on it is that I think, if you looked at some of the outlier macro scenarios that we've been discussing, the single family rental space looks really good then because in, in a, you know, let's say we get a big jobs recession, it's going to destroy the, the credit quality of the marginal first time home buyer. And so there's going to be more renters than there are buyers. And so sure. it, it's, there, there's a, there's sort of a defensive nature to that strategy and then the other thing that got me that really piqued my interest, I was talking to a friend of mine who manages a lot of money for Asian pension funds. Mm-hmm. And the last 10 years, they, they he's been investing almost exclusively in Asia. And now none of them want to be in Asia anymore because of uh, you know, what, whatever's happening in, in China. So mm, their number one, he, he told me their number one most excited asset class is American houses, single family rentals. That's their number one most excited place to put their money. Interesting that, uh, yeah, because yeah. it's hard to see how it really breaks. You could, you can see how you might lose ten percent. It's really hard to construct a case where you lose sixty percent. Yep. Hmm. You know, uh, so this has been a fascinating discussion, but uh, I think uh, we've probably pushed the edge of the envelope. I should call it into it here for the time being. Maybe we can discuss another time. Sure. Um, Thank you so much for coming on, Nick. Um, where can people find your work if they'd like to to kind of follow what you're writing and follow your thoughts on all this? So people can find me. It's really easy. Just nickhilaris.com. So just my name.com. And I have a, a newsletter that you can subscribe for. And I and I set it up where it's it's kind of on the, the, the donation. You can sign up for free or you can choose to donate. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at Nick Hilaris. And then... I appear and work regularly with Real Vision. So subscribe to Real Vision. Check out my, I've, I've been a, both an interviewer and an interviewee and uh, have a couple things in the pipeline. So excellent. 
It's a pleasure, Nick. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, really fun, man. Thanks. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.